0: Hello and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCA LP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. Welcome to a special edition of Words on Film for the year 2023. Actually, it's the very first show of 2023, and it's celebrating the best and also deploring the worst films of our previous year, 2022. This was actually a show I was planning to do on December 31st, 2022, but thanks to Southwest Airlines, I was not able to do it. I was actually scheduled to come back to the area in which I live, which happens to be Nashville, Tennessee, to do my show. But Southwest Airlines canceled my flight. But it was good in a way because I got to spend a little more time with my family uh, going into the new year of 2023. But I'm still really pissed off at Southwest for their mishandling of not only my flight, but several other thousand flights. But rest assured, it wasn't as bad as some other people had it. Some people were stranded in airports, their luggage was lost. I did not meet that same fate. So something good came out of it. The unfortunate part was I wasn't able to do an end-of-year show, and I had something big planned. So that was delayed, but I'm doing my special show or one of my special shows right now. And I'm going to start off this show by highlighting the best movies, in my opinion, of 2022. Now, a few disclaimers first. There are several movies that, as of the date of the show, I have not seen. For example, The Fablemans, which was uh, Steven Spielberg's latest film, and also The Whale, which is known to be Brendan Fraser's comeback role. I haven't actually seen those movies yet. I really, really wanted to, but I unfortunately ran out of time. So this is not... This is, of course, the best in my opinion, but it's also of the best that I've seen. Another disclaimer is I am rating films that were eligible for theatrical release. In other words, they were eligible to be rated by the Motion Picture Association of America, not made-for-TV movies. And I'm also excluding miniseries. And even though miniseries are fair game on words on film, and there were several miniseries that were released on streaming platforms like Netflix, Hulu, Paramount+, and many others... I'm not going to include them on my list. And I think that's just about it for disclaimers. And I got to tell you, this is really hard to put together a top 10 list because every time there's always one film, one or two films that I wish was on this list. But that, those are the disclaimers there. Without any further ado, let me just get into the top 10, what I think are the top 10 best films of 2022. And I'm going to start with number 10 on my list. And this is actually one that was released relatively early in the year. It came out in March, and the movie is Turning Red, which is a Disney Pixar film that Disney chose to release on Disney Plus instead of in theaters. And I think that was a bad move, especially considering that the other Disney Pixar film they chose to release in theaters and not at first on Disney Plus was Lightyear. And Lightyear was not very well received critically and commercially. It was Disney Pixar's first major commercial failure. I think that Turning Red would have been better in that regard. But let me tell you what I loved about it. Not only did I love the animation, but I also loved the original story that combines science fiction with adolescent angst to make something very refreshingly original. I don't exactly know what it's like to be a minority, but I could relate to a lot of adolescent angst in the movie Turning Red. And not only that, but I also really loved how the Malin girl in this movie took something negative and also turned it into a positive while also learning a lot more about herself as well as her relationship with her family, particularly her very strict mother. Turning Red is a very original film. Uh, of course, it, it has some themes and tropes that are somewhat familiar, but overall, it's definitely Disney's best animated film to come out this year, and that's why it's in the number 10 spot for me. Number 9, this was also a really tough choice, but I had to give it to the movie She Said, which is... Not only based on a book, but it's also based on the true story about New York Times reporters, Megan Choohy and Jody Cantor, who break one of the most important stories in a generation, which happens to be about Harvey Weinstein as well as the allegations that are set against him. And she said is not as good a journalism movie as Spotlight for example. Spotlight was a bit more of a game changer, but it does. Highlight a very important moment, not only in American history and journalism history, but also. I think that's about what I was going to say. But in in any, in any event, Megan Towie and Jody Cantor are played very well here by Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, respectively. And there are also some very impressive performances, um, supporting performances. Uh, by the likes of Patricia Clarkson, Andre Brouwer, and probably those who are featured less prominently in this movie, some of the actresses who play some of Harvey Weinstein's um, victims, and not those who were more high-profile, like Rose McGowan, Ashley Judd, and Gwyneth Paltrow, amongst other people. It is a very good movie about... Um, not only journalism, but also about a, a case that changed America, and it took a little while, but eventually there was a domino effect that caused it to change the world. So She Said is number nine on my list of best movies of the year. Number eight in terms of best movies of the year is the film Glass Onion, whose full title is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. This is a movie that I have not reviewed on my show yet, but in the coming weeks, I will. And the reason it's called The Knives Out Mystery is to remind people that it is sort of an equal, not a sequel, but an equal to the movie Knives Out. But the re- really the only thing that Glass Onion has in common with Knives Out is the fact that Daniel Craig comes back as Benoit Blanc, and *Knives Out* was one of the better films of 2019. It certainly was a box office hit when it came out, but I actually argue that *Glass Onion* is a better movie because *Knives Out* is certainly a very intriguing *Who Done It* and has its share of twists and turns. But *Glass Onion* is coming out in a year where there were other mystery movies like See How They Run, for example, and also Death on the Nile that were just straight up whodunits. But Glass Onion kind of turns that on its head in the sense that there's going to be this mystery or this, this fake murder mystery that's going on. But then when that's thwarted, there's an actual real murder that goes on, but it's not the victim, and it's not the culprit that's the most interesting part of this movie. It certainly is the twist, but I'm not going to give that away just yet. And even though Daniel Craig's southern accent is a bit distracting, he does play the character of Benoit Blanc very well, and is certainly one of those detectives that's up there with Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot in the sense that not only are they very good at solving mysteries, but they also make very intriguing characters. So, Glass Onion is my choice for the number eight best movie of the year. Number seven, in terms of great movies this year, is a movie that was under the radar for the the most part, but it actually has one of, I think, the best leading performances of the year. Although, taking that into account, I haven't seen The Whale yet. Number 7 on my list of best films of the year is Breaking, which is in essence a modern-day dog-day afternoon, but it's about a marine war veteran who's played by John Boyega who faces mental and emotional challenges when he tries to reintegrate into civilian life. And he ends up robbing a be- or rather holding up a bank, not necessarily robbing it, and he's not actually after money, but I'm not going to reveal exactly what it is he's after, but John Boyega plays an Iraq war veteran so well that he didn't even have to say anything in the first few scenes of this movie to lead me to conclude that he is or was in the film a war veteran. But the scenes he has in the bank with Nicole Behari and Salinas Leva are Leva, excuse me are excellent in and of themselves. When he enters negotiation with an FBI agent by the name of Eli Bernard who's played by Michael Kenneth Williams in what happens to be his very last on-screen performance, that's when a lot of the magic of this movie really comes through. It does end a bit surprisingly, but this movie is anchored very well by John Boyega's amazing lead performance, and I hope that John Boyega gets the attention for this role that he deserves. I also hope that Michael Kenneth Williams gets some sort of posthumous recognition as well, But Breaking is number seven on my list of best films of 2022, in my opinion. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Continuing on with my list of the best films of 2022, let me just give you a recap of the movies that I have given or awarded the best, in my opinion, of 2022 so far. Number 10, Turning Red. Number 9, She Said. Number 8, Glass Onion. Number 7, Breaking. Now, I'm going to give you my number six best film of the year, and that film is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. So, it's interesting because in this year, we've had three animated Pinocchio movies. The first was an Italian film, or rather, excuse me, a Russian film based on an Italian film story, which had, and I swear I'm not making this up, Pauly Shore as the voice of Pinocchio. It was kind of a so bad it's good, but I'm not going to include it on this list. The other one was the controversial Robert Zemeckis directed live action Disney remake of Pinocchio, which I didn't think was that bad, but I certainly wouldn't include it in the best of the year. However, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which came out on Netflix on December 9th, is superior to those other films. And maybe every other live, or rather movie version of Pinocchio, except maybe perhaps the original 1940 Disney's Pinocchio in just about every way. It's not exactly true to the original book written by Carlo Collati, but I think it makes up for that in a lot of ways by A, telling an original version of Pinocchio, and B, having the most stunning stop-motion animation of any other movie this year. And I say that reluctantly because there was another stop-motion animation film that came out this year called Wendell & Wild, which was directed by Henry Selick, who had previously brought us such movies as The Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline. But Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio inches above Wendell & Wild, just because of its intricacy, and its attention to detail, but it also sort of twists and turns Carlo Colodi's original book in a very uh, good way, which I won't uh, give away entirely, but I absolutely love this film. I love the voice acting. I especially love the animation, but I also really love what Guillermo del Toro did in his own unique way with the story, which is why Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, make no mistake about that, is number six on my list of best films of the year. Number five on my list of best films of the year is a movie that probably technically would have been considered a 2021 film, but I'm adding it to my list this year because I saw it relatively late in 2022, and the timing of this film could not have been better in terms of what we're experiencing in America right now. The movie is called Happening, or its French were um, title, Levenment. And it is an adaptation of Annie Ernaux's novel of the same name that looks back on, and this is based on, sort of inspired by actual events, because it's, it's a novel, not uh, a memoir, but it looks back on a woman's experience with abortion when it was still illegal in France in the 1960s. And today, it's legal in France, but actually in the United States. It's still legal in some states, but thanks to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, it's illegal in a lot of places, including the state in which I am recording this podcast, which is Tennessee. And I saw this movie before the Supreme Court made the extremely controversial decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, despite it being federal law for 49 years. And this movie demonstrates how disastrous it would really be for abortion to be illegal, particularly for some women. Because even though abortion is illegal, that just means that women will take even more dangerous and extreme measures to get rid of unwanted pregnancies. And the performances in this film are amazing in and of themselves. And there are also some very good lessons to extract, regardless of whether you are pro-choice or pro-life. In fact, I think probably this movie would convert more pro-lifers than it would pro-choice um, believers. But it's not propaganda either. It's it's a very well-acted film with a an amazing lead actress performance by Ana Maria Bartolome, which really makes this one of the best and most memorable films of the year. And now on to my number four best film of the year. This is another excellent animated film in a year of excellent animated films. And I will do my recap of uh, the best films of the year that I've listed before the break. But I'll I'll just say, for example, there were some excellent uh, animated films to come out this year, including Turning Red, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, as previously mentioned, the Bad Guys and several others, but this is what I think is the best animated film of the year and also my fourth best film of 2022. And that film is Apollo 10 and a Half, a space, a space age childhood, which was written by and directed by Richard Linklater. And this is the third film that Richard Linklater has directed that is animated. The first film he did was Waking Life, and the second film he did was A Scanner Darkly. And both of those films were primarily for adults, and they used motion capture animation for uh, to animate those. And Apollo 10 and a Half* also uses motion capture animation, but it's more than just the impressive animation, which is technically rotoscoped. It's also the fact that it makes me feel like I'm living and experiencing what life was like in Houston, Texas in 1969. Now, granted, there is a major plot in this film where NASA recruits a child in this film to embark on a mission to the moon before Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins make their mission as well. Is it hokey and unrealistic? Yes. But it also plays into a valid and palpable child fantasy, but also taking it rather seriously and also taking in the idea of the excitement of the space race, which is coming more into fruition nowadays. But on top of that, what I liked best about the film was not necessarily the motion capture animation. I think it could have been any other animation. It would have been equally as captivating. I also absolutely love the storytelling. I loved the first-person voiceover narration by Jack Black. And I also really liked how... The movie took you into what it was really like to be a child in the 60s. Not just the excitement about the space program, but also what it was like to be in school, what it was like to be at home with your family, watching what was on TV. I loved all of that. This movie felt like a time capsule, and it also felt like a great movie. I consider it the best animated film of 2022 and the fourth best film of 2022, also in my opinion, and I want to stress that. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke, continuing with my countdown of what I think are the best films of 2022 amongst the films that I've seen and those that are eligible. So I'm going to run down what the what the countdown has been so far. Number 10 on my list of best films of 2022, Turning Red. Number 9, She Said. Number 8, Glass Onion. Number seven, Breaking. Number six, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Number five, Happening. Number four, Apollo Ten and a Half: A Space Age Childhood. Now on to number three. My number three favorite film of this year is Tar, which is directed by Todd Field and stars Kate Blanchett as the titular Lydia Tar who is a famous classical composer who's known not only amongst people in classical music circles but also very much like Luciano Pavarotti and John Williams she's also known to people who don't who doesn't who don't regularly listen to classical music but The film centers on her, who is widely considered one of the greatest living composers-slash-conductors and the very first female director of a major German orchestra. Is this movie great because of what Lydia Tarr has accomplished? No, it isn't. It's great because not only of Cape Blanchett's amazing performance, which I think is actually better in this film than it was in Blue Jasmine, for which she actually won an Academy Award, but it also shows how delicate and consequential her success has been especially when a protege of hers commits suicide and it also tells you a little bit about society and our views on suicide as well as the responsibilities of those who actually take their own life and i think that part is particularly fascinating but in addition to that Kate Blanchett's performance in this film is amazing. It's actually even more amazing that Todd Field not only directed the film, but he also wrote the story and the screenplay. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't receive other input from other producers or studio executives. He probably did. That's kind of the way Hollywood works. In a way I don't entirely understand, but I can certainly appreciate or I, I can acknowledge that it's not quite that easy to make a film, but Tar is definitely one of the films that I enjoyed the most. I do have to say that there were some scenes at the end that I think could have been cut from the film altogether, about three or four scenes, but Cape Blanchett turns in a terrific performance, and this is a film that certainly makes you think, which is why Tar is the third best film of 2022, of course, in my opinion. Number two on my list of best films of the year is Till. This is a film that has a star-making performance by Danielle Deadweiler as the mother of Emmett Till, who was murdered senselessly in a brutal lynching in Mississippi in 1955. And his mother, as I said, played by Danielle Deadweiler, vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. And for those who know their history or who have seen this film already, we know that justice was certainly miscarried in the years following Emmett Till's death. But Daniel Deadweiler does an amazing job playing Mamie Till Mobley. And even though I spoke praises of Cate Blanchett's performance in Tar, I think if there's any woman who can beat Cate Blanchett in the Best Actress category at the Academy Awards, provided that she is nominated, it is Daniel Deadweiler. And I had no idea who Daniel Deadweiler was before seeing this movie. The people who made the film could have cast somebody who's more well-known right now, but Daniel Deadweiler does an amazing job. And also, there are some excellent supporting performances here by Jalen Hall, who plays the late Emma Till, as well as Frankie Faison, Haley Bennett, Whoopi Goldberg, and several other people. It's a film that takes you back to the ugly parts of the 50s, and I think gives you a A better view of what life was really like down south back then, as well as the reflection on the miscarriage of justice that took place back then, which is why Till is my second favorite film of 2022. Now, before I give you my number one best film of 2022, let me give you another brief recap of the films that I thought were among the best of 2022, and it was very hard to whittle down this list. I think it's hard just about every year, but I had an especially hard time this year. So, the countdown again. Number 10, Turning Red. Number 9, She Said. Number 8, Glass Onion. Number 7, Breaking. Breaking. Number six, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Number five, Happening. Number four, Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. Number three, Tar. Number two, Till. And my number one pick for best film of the year is for 2022 is Everything Everywhere All at Once. This is a film that was directed by a team known as the Daniels, but they're. Their names are Dan Kwan and Daniel uh, Sheenert. I hope I pronounced that last name right. They also wrote the story and the screenplay about an aging Chinese immigrant who's played by Michelle Yeoh, who is swept up in an insane adventure in which she alone can save the world by exploring other universes, connecting with the lives she could have led. And this is a film that brings out a great performance not only from Michelle Yeoh as well as the actor who played her husband, Ki-Hui Kwan, who we haven't seen since he co-starred in The Goonies. But there's also an amazing performance, supporting performance in this movie by Jamie Lee Curtis, who has not yet been nominated for any Oscars, despite the fact that she's been in some Academy Award-nominated movies, such as A Fish Called Wanda. But I hope this is the film that gives her at least a nod, if not a win. But what I liked best about this movie was its energy, its creativity, as well as telling a story that you don't often see in a lot of Hollywood films. In addition to that, it actually made better use out of the alternate universe theories than, say a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that came out this year, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That movie kind of flirted with the idea of alternate universes, but didn't take it nearly as far as the far superior Spider-Man No Way Home or this film, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I just think that the movie was extremely energetic very creative, and turned in some amazing performances, and even if you didn't really know what was going on in the film, you can't deny that Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of the best films of the year, and in my book, it is the best film of 2022. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Before the break, I gave you my list of the 10 best films of the year. And in this special edition of Words on Film, the special edition episode of Words on Film, I'm giving you the best and worst of 2022. And a little bit of a disclaimer of the films that are on my list of the worst films. This is not necessarily movies that took money out of my pocket, although some of them did, but they also took one and a half to two and a half hours of my life that I will never get back. Now it's payback time, but a couple of disclaimers about my qualifications for this list of the worst films of 2022. First of all, I'm not including movies that are made for TV. These are movies that either have to have been released in theaters or have had to have been rated by the Motion Picture Association of America. And the line between what are mainstream movies and made-for-TV movies is blurring, thanks in large part to the availability of streaming services. But of course, I try my best. Also, no independent films. I'm not going to rip on some... Director who is put in their who is presumably putting their best effort in their first or second film. This is mainstream, big budget Hollywood films or semi big budget Hollywood films only. And the third criteria is I had to have actually seen the movies on this list, and I am just telling you that I'm not going to put a movie on this list that is bad by reputation. I actually have to have seen the movie and declared that it sucked by my own eyes and ears. So with that said, I'm also going to tell you that this list is rather than being a top 10 list, I'm breaking it up into particular categories. And the first category I'm going to put this under is Laughless Comedies, which happen to be sort of all-star ensemble comedies. And the first movie on my Laughless Comedy list is Tyler Perry's A Medea Homecoming. What makes me enraged about this movie is that years ago, when Tyler Perry came out in 2019 with A Medea Family Funeral, he promised, he promised that that would be the last Medea movie he would ever make. And I don't understand his creative process. It's obviously done well for him because not only has he made a lot of money and became a household name, but he also owns a a movie studio in Atlanta, Georgia. What makes me really mad is that he could just be a media mogul and not make another movie for the rest of his life please don't make another movie. But instead he returns to this character that I don't think anybody really finds funny anymore. And what's more is he also tells a story with this movie that's out of a sitcom. It's just not very good to me. It's not very funny. I'm sick and tired of this Medea character. Not, not because the character is necessarily unfunny. I think that Medea could be funny, but Tyler Perry just refuses as a director, a screenwriter, and an actor to have Medea do anything that is even remotely humorous or worth watching. And I frankly think that these Medea movies are also very lazy in their execution. So I... I hope this is the last Medea movie, but somehow I doubt that it is. My next entry into Laughless Comedies is another all-star ensemble, which is called The Bubble. And the really disappointing part about this is that The Bubble is directed by Judd Apatow, who has previously brought us such funny and poignant movies previously as The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. And this is, of course, probably his weakest effort in his repertoire so far. It is a satire on not only the movie industry, but also how people made movies during the pandemic. And it's about a group of actors and actresses who are stuck inside a pandemic bubble at a hotel attempting to complete a low-budget film. And the movie, in terms of its execution, isn't particularly well done, but also it's not even really particularly well organized either. And there are characters you want to get behind like the lead actress Karen Gillan who plays a lead actress not really all that different from herself but she's given very little to do in addition to other actors in this film who seem to be just playing it by ear. And sometimes improvisation can be really good for films. But in this case, the movie was not only unfunny, but it also lacked a lot of structure. And even some of the CGI effects in this film felt cheap in a sense that I don't think that in this universe people would want to actually go out to a movie or even spend time in front of their TV streaming the movie that they're making in here. So it's probably one of the weaker Hollywood satires I've ever seen. And even though I didn't review The Bubble on my show, I did see it, and I do concede that it is probably one of the worst films of 2022, in my opinion. Another category that... I've created for Worst Films of 22 is a category I lovingly call Liam Neeson Enough Already. This is a collection of films in which Liam Neeson is starred that are very tired and Liam Neeson looks tired doing these films. The first entry in my Worst of 2022 in the category of Liam Neeson Enough Already is the movie Blacklight. This is where Liam Neeson plays a government operative who comes to term with his shadowy past and is also getting ready for retirement. But one case, which happens to be an espionage case, where which leads all the way up to the FBI, gets him back in the game for one more mission. The only problem is Liam Neeson really looks bored doing these films and the movie is not particularly memorable. In addition to that, the action, particularly when you have a guy in his late 60s or early 70s doing these action sequences, look incredibly unrealistic. There are people who are shooting at Liam Neeson, there are people who are setting off explosions five feet from Liam Neeson's head, and somehow Liam Neeson not only doesn't die, he also just kind of shakes it off and runs like a bionic man, so... Blacklight was a very boring film and also very tired, and I have never experienced a moment where I've been in a film where so many bullets are flying, so many things are exploding, and I've just been bored with what I've been seeing on the screen. And the other entry in this category of Liam Neeson Enough Already is a movie that is ironically called Memory. And the most ironic part about the movie Memory is that it is very forgettable. But Liam Neeson in this movie plays an assassin for hire, again, who is on the verge of retirement, again, and he is going in for one last mission, again, so he can have a comfortable retirement to spend with his family, again, and he finds that he becomes a target, again, after he refuses to complete a job for a dangerous criminal organization, say it with me, again. The fact that I had to say again, over and over, as I'm detailing you this plot, just tells you how far Liam Neeson has fallen as a credible actor. I mean, in one way, its I I guess it's okay that he found his niche, but when he's making a movie like Taken over and over again, it's just not, I think, worth his time or his paycheck. And... What's really ironic about this is that Liam Neeson was considered an actor's actor back in the 90s and the aughts. He was up there with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks as an actor that people would take seriously whenever he was in a film. Schindler's List is undoubtedly no exception to that rule. Not only is that Liam Neeson's greatest film, it's also one of the greatest films ever made. I just don't know why Liam Neeson has continued to do these tired movies over and over again. But it's because of that, that Memory and Blacklight are among the worst movies of 2022. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and I'm continuing my countdown of the list of worst films of 2022. And very much like Siskel and Ebert used to do, rather than doing a top 10 list, I've been putting these bad films in particular categories. So previously I had Laughless Comedies. Then I had Liam Neeson, Enough Already, which in retrospect I probably should have saved for last because that was probably the most clever category that I've come up with uh, so far. But I'm going to get into my next category, which is all-Star Messes, and some of these movies that I'm telling you are some of the worst are films that I haven't reviewed on this show yet, but I'll get to them, and the first movie in this case is one of those times where I, I've i seen a film, but I haven't reviewed it on this show, but rest assured, I have seen it. The first movie, in All-Star Mess, I'm going to declare one of the worst of 2022, is a movie that's called Babylon. This is the fourth film by Damien Chazelle, which he also wrote, and it is a mess that has studio interference written all over it. It's a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess, and it traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. And frankly, Babylon felt less like a legitimate drama, which it should have been since it had such notable actors in the film as Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie, but it felt almost kind of like a hardcore porn film. And by that, I mean not the entire plot of the film, but the fact that they had sort of outrageous visuals, particularly in the beginning where they had an orgy scene, which appeared to be out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But when you had the visuals more interesting than the story itself, It didn't work for me. In addition to that, Brad Pitt played a very boring character who we've actually seen before in movies like Singing in the Rain and The Artist. He plays a silent film actor very much like Douglas Fairbanks, who is a matinee idol, but when sound gets incorporated into more films, he finds himself becoming more obsolete. The problem is not only is Brad Pitt's character very vaguely and poorly written, but Brad Pitt almost looks bored playing his character. I think Margot Robbie does what she can with her character, who also experiences the same kinds of ups and downs, being a silent film actress herself, but... The love story between her and Diego Calva's character isn't very interesting, and there are some other supporting characters in this film, like um, Sidney Palmer, who's played by uh, Jovan Adepo, and also a gossip columnist named Eleanor St. John, who's played by Gene Smart, who are just put in this film, have very little screen time, and the more you wanted to get into their subplots, the more the film kind of moves on in its own hurry. So Babylon is one of the all-star messes. Another all-star mess on my list of worst films of 2022 is a film called The Estate, which I could have included in Laughless Comedy as well, but this is undoubtedly one of the worst comedies of the year. It's about very selfish people who attempt to win over their terminally ill, difficult-to-please aunt, who's played in this film in probably the best performance by Kathleen Turner, but just because she has a great performance doesn't mean the rest of the film works, and rest assured, it doesn't. There has to be characters in this film... Who, to whom you relate. Not everybody in the film has to be likable, but the problem is there's no one in this film who's very likable or very funny. And the plot itself, as well as the resolution of the plot, feels like it's out of a sitcom. And the characters are very, very poorly written The the actors in the film, like Tony Collette and David Duchovny, try to do what they can with them, but the fact is they're stereotypes, not real characters. And there are also some very forced comedy scenes, including one with a prosthetic penis. And no, I am not actually making that up. It's very forced comedy. It's not a very particularly well-written film in terms of its characters or its story. And Estate is a major miss on my list. And now that I've gone through that um, category of all-star messes, it's now time for me to get into my next category, which is Don't Remake Good Movies. One of these films on my list of Don't Remake Good Movies is not technically a remake. It's actually more like a sequel, but the way that the plot comes out is basically like a remake. In this case, I'm talking about the 2012, 2020- Uh, 22 edition of Scream. This is the fifth Scream film in the series, and it should have been called Scream 5, first of all. I really, really hate it when sequels take on the exact same name as the original film, and it doesn't even matter how good or bad the film is. The film should have been called Scream 5 or The Next Scream or Scream Louder. Maybe these aren't the most original titles, but Undoubtedly, they are more original than the title of this film. Plus, even though Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and other people who reprise their roles from the original are good in this film, the new characters they introduce aren't very interesting, and the kills in this film are very predictable and very dull. So Scream, the 2022 version, again, that's my first uh, gripe with this movie, is on my list of Don't Remake Good Movies. My other choice for Don't Remake Good Movies is a film that I actually have not seen the original of just yet. The The original Firestarter starred Drew Barrymore. I've seen it advertised, but I haven't actually seen the movie in and of itself. But my guess is it probably would have to be good enough to have merited a remake, but this is not the movie that makes either film look good. This is based on the novel by Stephen King, and it adds to a roster of Stephen King movies that are just subpar. But again, Stephen King is one of the best working writers out there. And he is a man of limited, uh, unlimited imagination. But these movies somehow limit his imagination. So for those of you who don't know, Firestarter is about a young girl who tries to understand how she mysteriously gained the power to set things on fire with her mind. And Zac Efron, who I like in many films, plays her father. And I think he definitely turns in the best performance here, but there are mistakes that he makes as his daughter's guardian that seem very dumbfounded in terms of the plot of this film. There are things he does that really don't make a ton of sense. Plus, there are ways in which the the character of Charlie McGee, the daughter who can find herself spontaneously combusting, there are ways in which she could have evaded authorities in this film, which would have worked. And plus, the authorities in this film, who are headed by a woman by the name of Captain Hollister, who played by Gloria Rubin, seem to have her best interests in mind. But the movie makes you think that this government agency is dangerous and it just doesn't work as a horror film, an action film, or as a good movie, which is why Firestarter is on my list of don't remake good movies, not because necessarily the original is superior, I don't exactly know, but this movie could have been executed a lot better than it ultimately was. And, dare I say it, Stephen King might have done um, this movie justice by actually participating in it but with that said Stephen King has participated in movies based on his novels that ended up being really bad so I say that with a grain of salt as well Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Continuing with my list of the worst films of 2022. Now, I've put all my movies that I consider the worst of 2022 into categories. But then there's my final category, which I think are the top two worst films of the year. And I really can't categorize these, although I could have put... This number two worst film of the year into Scareless Horror Movies, but it's sort of a horror action film as well as a superhero movie that just did not do it for me or for anyone else who saw this film. And my number two worst film of the year is Morbius. Morbius is a film that is in Sony's Spider Man universe, which is also home to such films as Venom and a few others and Venom is a film that looks like it's going to incorporate itself into the Marvel cinematic universe seamlessly because Venom, the original film was very good. It's sequel where they introduced uh, Venom's nemesis was not quite as good, but still a relatively decent film. But Morbius is a film that the Marvel cinematic universe will disown probably as quick as you could drop a hat. And it also shows that Jared Leto does not do very well in any comic book movie of any kind. He was subpar when he played Joker in the DC Extended Universe, so much so that he was in one movie, The Suicide Squad, and he was never mentioned again. He wasn't even included in the next Harley Quinn movie. That's how bad he was. And my guess is you will not see Morbius again, not only because the special effects in this film are laughable, but also because Jared Leto isn't a very good lead actor, or at least he hasn't been in quite some time. He is an excellent actor. After all, he has won an Academy Award, but he hasn't done very much since Dallas Buyers Club to convince us movie-going audience members that he is worthy of taking on a lead role. Plus, the story of Morbius, even though it may have been based on the Marvel comic book, seemed to rip its plot with the antagonist and all from the 2008 movie The Incredible Hulk, which I think was a better film than a lot of other people gave it credit for being. But it still um, goes to show you that Morbius was unoriginal and also very flaccid in terms of its acting, its special effects, and its execution. But it's not the worst film of the year. Instead, the worst film of the year, in my opinion, is drumroll, please. And I don't have the effect to get a drumroll, but you can use your imagination. The worst film of 2022 is "Redeeming Love." Is this a movie you've heard of? Probably not. But it goes to show you that it's probably it's probably for your best interest that you that you haven't heard about this movie. It's based on an original screenplay written by DJ Caruso, who also directed the film, although it does feel like even subpar for Nicholas Sparks standards. It's about a woman by the name of Angel who sold into prostitution as a child and knows nothing but betrayal. But can her heart be mended? Apparently, this was actually based on a novel by Francine Rivers, who also wrote the screenplay. And this feels... Very much like a religious film, or it's a film that that has an agenda, and you see the the romance that's going on here between this prostitute angel as well as this down home country boy who is falling for this prostitute, and the acting is subpar plus you could tell this woman who's is, is messing with this guy's mind and, and also his heart to the point where you just want to shake the guy in this, in this guy in, in this movie and say, man, don't be so pious. There are other better women out there for you. You will be happier with somebody else. Don't try to play into this pretty woman narrative because you are taking this woman and putting her on a pedestal. So I think I've given you all I've hated about Redeeming Love, and altogether, it is a semi-forgettable, but most especially a bad movie. And it is why I consider Redeeming Love the worst film, in my opinion, of 2022. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures and I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.